Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Today we read Mark chapter 8, 27 through chapter 9, verse 8 best known for the story of the transfiguration, but there is so much in this text before we even get to that mountain. Finally, in this week's text, the disciples have the talk with Jesus, the talk about who Jesus actually is, about what their relationship actually is. But just because they've talked about it doesn't mean the disciples really understand. How can they, or we, wrap our heads around both the humanness and the cosmicness what do we imagine it is like for Jesus to be surrounded by people who, faithful as they are and try as they might, just can't quite get there? We sure do love Peter's courage as he tries, though. Thanks for being with us. Oh, Bobby, a song is rising up in me. It's about you. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> I don't know if I do or not. Uh, what? Hello, Bobby. Well, hello, Bobby. It's so <laughs> nice to have you back where you belong. On the Bible Worm Podcast, it is nice to be where I belong. How are You're you? You're looking swell, Bobby. We can <laughs> tell, Bobby. Okay, we're stopping now. Yeah, yeah. That was really good. I'm fine. I'm a little like boppy today. I'm unsure why. Got a spring in your step, a song in your heart. We just got to, you got to take those moments when they come. Yeah. So I'm going to do actually the entire episode in song. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah, mm-hmm. I will yeah. Uh, I will look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially since it's such a straightforward little text like the Transfiguration. Yeah, this is kind of a, there's like, this, there's a lot. Bobby, there's a lot in this text. There's a lot in this text. Some important little sections of text that could stand on their own and each be a podcast unto themselves. And here mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. I know people who are going to have to preach on this are going to have to make some choices. For sure. Thanks. For sure. So our text today is Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, and then it carries into chapter 9, verse 8. Last time we were reading in chapter 6, I don't know if there's anything you want to fill in in between. It's so funny now that now that we get to read, you know, so much of the gospel, it's like missing a day of the days of our lives. <laughs> like you yeah. have to know what happened in between. Yeah. So is there anything we have to know in the the days of Jesus's life? Well, you know, it's always worth just reading to fill in your knowledge, yeah. but a lot of it is, you know, it's sort of what you think is going to happen. <laughs> uh, he's <laughs> just like a soap opera. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm he's not really a few thousand people. He's, you know, performed a few miracles. There is one story that I think is worth talking about, and it's the one that comes right before this one, mm-hmm, starting in mm-hmm. 822. In that story, Jesus encounters a man who is unable to see, and he heals him and says, can you see now? And the man says, I can see, but when I look at people, they seem like trees walking around. 
which is not how people are supposed to look, <laughs> by the way. Uh, so Jesus heals him again, and then he can see. And so there's a yeah. sort of the double healing of the blind man. And mm-hmm. so there's this really curious, like, what is going on there? One way of reading that is in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to get to the story of another blind man named Bartimaeus. And Jesus is going to be able to heal him on his first try. And so there's this sort of set of texts between 822 and 10, like the end of chapter 10, which are bracketed, framed by stories about Jesus healing blind men. Mm. And so some scholars think that the story of the double healing of the blind man here in Mark 8.22 is sort of serving a metaphorical purpose that the blind man is sort of standing in for the disciples, who, as we'll see in today's text that we're about to read, sort of start to see who Jesus is, mm. but they really don't see it. They, it's like Jesus right. is like a tree walking around. Right, the Messiah right, right. is like some yes. contorted vision of the Messiah. Yeah. I have found that a really useful way, not only of making sense of why does Jesus have to heal that guy twice, mm. but also of making sense of the text that we're going to be in really for the next three weeks about what is going on in this disciples kind of getting to figure out who Jesus is, but not really getting it. Mm, I love that. I think that's incredibly helpful. I'm going to hold on to that little key as we, as, as we start getting into that conversation, as you were saying, like they get it, but do they get it? What do they really get? Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I, I love that double healing of the blind man story. And I kind of wish it was one we really got to talk about, but, but alas, Alas, that is not what's in the cards for us. The cards for us today start in verse 27. So that is where I will start. Yes. Chapter 8. And I am reading from the NRSV. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Okay, we've only read a couple verses, Bobby, but already I think we got to stop for a minute here. Yes. I feel like this is like the moment of like having the talk in a relationship where you're sort of like. (laughs) Define the relationship. Yeah, we we need to define this relationship. Who who are we? Who are we? To yeah. each other. Mm-hmm. Man, yeah. I was always so awful at those conversations. I had several people tell me to say, get behind me Satan, although we haven't gotten there yet. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> Those are not, those not I really hope well you will me. share those. Really hope you'll share those stories as they come up. Yeah. yeah I mean, you only need one that goes well. Yeah. <laughs> if that, you know. God bless your beautiful spouse. Mm. Okay. I think it's so interesting here, Bobby, that it that it starts with who do people say that I am? Yeah. First of all, I feel like that's so relatable. Is just like <laughs> as a, as you know, people are talking about you. Yeah. What What do you think about like why do you think Jesus starts with that question instead of just asking who do you think I am? The way that I have read it is not that Jesus doesn't know what people are saying. Like, it's not like informational for him, mm-hmm. but it's more by way of drawing a contrast between what the hoi polloi are thinking and what the disciples are thinking. And whether Jesus is doing that 
as a way of sort of testing whether the disciples have come further than the general population based on their Mm -hmm. experiences of him Mm -hmm. or whether Mark is trying to draw the contrast for, for, for you and me, for the reader so that we can say like, Oh yeah, look, they really have come some distance. I'm not sure, but I, that way of framing it as most people are going to get it one way. You dear disciples are going to get it a different way that Mm -hmm. this is amplifying that dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. That's really helpful. And and the answers they give, I think, are the same answers that they sort of reported to the audience, reported to us as readers in chapter six, right? right? That that's that's what people were saying. And we learned there that the king said, Oh, that's John the Baptist. Right. He's he's come back for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then Peter answers him, You are the Messiah. Yes. But of course, the Messiah at that time doesn't necessarily mean exactly what a modern Christian reader of this text would say the Messiah means. Right. And I guess this is maybe where we start getting into that. Like they see, they see the tree walking around. Like they, they get part of it. Right. What do you think Peter means by Messiah? Interestingly, this is the first time that that word has been used by characters mm. in the gospel of Mark. Like it's mm. easy to, as a, especially as a Christian reader to read this text. And, you know, Mark told us in the very first verse that this is the story of Jesus, the Christ, which is the Greek form of Messiah, son of God. And so we as readers have known since verse one, who Jesus is. And so you're like, oh yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. But this yeah. is really a monumental moment in the narrative of the gospel, because nobody has understood. The demons have understood that Jesus has some sort of spiritual power, maybe that he's the son of God. But nobody has started to grapple with this idea of Messiah until right here. Mm. What you're saying about, you know, understandings of Messiahship in first century Judaism, (laughs) like that's a complicated... A complicated That, is, a, that is indeed complicated, yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what you will think about it as well. I, in my head, they're sort of basically, even in first century Judaism, there were sort of two tracks that one might take. The expectation is that there's going to be some figure who comes and reestablishes a holy kingdom of some sort mm-hmm. in, in God's time, in the Messianic age. One set of folks would have understood that as a human political figure who would have come and reestablished the kingdom of Israel as its sort of independent, like throwing off its Roman overseers Mm -hmm. and really reestablishing Israel the way it was meant to be according to the biblical text, the Hebrew scripture. The other way of understanding it would have been a more spiritual Messiah who was coming from some in some way or another coming from the divine realm to es- establish a sort of different uh, era of the world mm. in which now we're living in God's time, not in political time any longer. And so it's sort of establishing the, the, the heavenly kingdom in some sense on the earth. My understanding is both of those were sort of active ideas in Judaism in the first century. What, what do you, what's your take on that? 
man, Judaism was complicated. Yes. Well, I guess it still is. But <laughs> yeah. No, but but like those are 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 <laughs> really really kind of different ideas of they what are. of what the Messiah will be. I mean, I associate that word with with this sense of hope that something is going to become like fundamentally profoundly aligned with God's vision for how the world should be. And yes. you're right, that can play out in different ways. Yes. I don't understand it as having any sense of like the the entity it like sort of the the Christian theology that developed over time that that the Messiah is themselves like part of the Godhead. No. Right. And and the person certainly is is special. They're chosen, they're anointed, and they have a special connection to God. But it's not like the necessarily the one and only through history. But they've been waiting a long time for this. Right. So to say that finally we think you are the Messiah is really to me categorically different than saying a prophet. Like right. prophets are great. Yes. We need prophets. They're important. But Messiah is is quite different from that. That's exactly right. And there's a singularity about messiahship that is not true of prophets. Your initial statement, which we kind of laughed at, that Judaism is complicated, is important. Because sometimes, especially I think Christian readers, but maybe readers in general, just think, oh, the Jews in the first century. But, you know, Josephus in his annals gives us four sects of Jews in the first century the Sadducees and the Pharisees, whom we see in the biblical text, the zealots, who one of Jesus's disciples is a zealot, who were really kind of political revolutionaries, who would have thought of the Messiah as like a political figure. Mm-hmm. And then the Essenes, who are not evident mm-hmm. in the New Testament, but probably were associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, who were apocalyptic Jews, who thought that the arrival of the Messiah in whatever form was going to bring about a cosmic battle between the forces of heaven and the and the kingdoms of the earth and mm-hmm. really change every everything about history very much diversity in that in that first century in in Jewish circles and those the idea of messiah would have meant something to all of them but you're exactly right it would not have meant the same thing to them yeah you were asking about what would peter have meant by it and I mean, part of me thinks that maybe Peter doesn't know exactly what he means. Mm-hmm. But in general, the understanding is that the Messiah would have been some sort of kind of heroic is the word I was going for. I don't know that I mean that exactly, but he was the Messiah was going to be a figure who transformed the world and instantiated mm-hmm. a new kingdom. In one way or another, the, the kingdom of Israel politically renewed or the kingdom of heaven newly come to earth and was going to be sort of wildly successful in that way. And so his expectation would at the very least have been that Jesus, if Jesus is the Messiah, that he's about to transform the world and bring every the reign of God to some sort of culmination which is in fact what Jesus does according to the New Testament, but not at all in the way that yeah, the expectation that he would might have, have been. expected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we get once again this sort of this secrecy about yeah. something that's going on with, with Jesus. He sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. 
And, you know, it occurs to me that, you know, again, like we've, we've said, like, he's not a prophet. This is fundamentally different from a prophet. But I'll use that as an example. If you were a prophet, you would want people going around saying you're a prophet because then maybe people would listen to you. As I'm saying that, I'm like, I don't know, would that be politically smart? I'm not very politically savvy, yeah. so, you know, I should not run for office. <laughs> so let me, maybe that's true and maybe that's not. But the question for me really is, <laughs> the eternal question, why? Why can't people know? How does that impede his mission somehow? Or is there some other reason he doesn't want them to know? That still is a complicated question. I think my first response is that being the Messiah in the way that Jesus is going to be the Messiah, according to the New Testament, is really not something that you can understand Mm -hmm. until Mm -hmm. you have witnessed the resurrection. And so sort of announcing that Jesus is the Messiah is going to create lots of confusion and maybe attract attention in ways that are, you know, the as you were suggesting, the history of Judaism in this period has a number of people who were declared messiahs, mm-hmm. started rebellions, and were executed by the Romans. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't, you don't want to mm-hmm. generate a following that says you're the messiah mm-hmm. until you're ready, until you're ready to draw some attention, Mm -hmm. which is going to also bring some ire with it. So I think Jesus is trying to prepare this inner group to understand what's going on, which is going to become available to a bigger group on the other side of Easter. But he doesn't want to jump the gun in terms of starting something he's not ready to see through yet. It's really helpful just to sort of be reminded, Bobby, that that in all these different um, groups within the Jewish people at that time, there were other people who were making these claims. Like yeah. this was not the only conversation happening about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. About messiahship, and that I think is an important thing to keep yeah. in mind too. It was a hot topic. Yes. Okay, I'm picking up in verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Whoa. Yeah. This is the same guy who just realized he was the Messiah. Right. Like Peter was, Peter like went to the front of the class just in the last paragraph. <laughs> now he's in the dunce corner. Yeah. Now he's, <laughs> he's those, in the, d- little yeah. pointy cat. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He got a little too confident there. Okay. So I want to get to that part in a minute, but I want to ask first about the use of son of man here. Oh, Lord. And sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, what I am no, what I am important. most interested in, I think, is that they just came to the designation the Messiah. Yes. And it seems like it would have been natural for God yes. for God, for Jesus then to say, the Messiah must undergo great suffering. But he doesn't. Yeah. He chooses this other designation that I know first and foremost. I mean, I just finished reading the book of Ezekiel, but I know it from 
the book of Ezekiel. Yeah. That's how Ezekiel is referred to as yeah. like human one, mortal one, something like that. You are yeah. in the lineage of the humans. Yeah. Why do you think, what, what are they going for with that that change in, in terminology here? Jesus goes by a number of titles in the gospel of Mark. Christ, Messiah, which we've just seen. Son of man, or in the CEB, the human one is how the CEB translates mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And also son of God. And each of those is saying they belong together. Like you can't, you can't understand what Mark is trying to say about Jesus without all mm-hmm. holding all of those together. Mm-hmm. Human one is used, as you're saying, in Ezekiel to mean you, human being, Ezekiel. There is another reference to the Son of Man or the human one in Daniel chapter 7. Mm-hmm. What has happened in Daniel chapter 7 is you've got the empires of the earth that are rising up out of the sea like beasts. And then God descends on a throne to judge the nations. And there is a figure who comes from the heavens riding on a cloud who is called the son of man or the human one or one like a human being Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who is given authority over the beasts over the empires. There is a whole argument about what that means, whether that is actually a human being. Son of man, you know, this in Hebrew and in Aramaic, the term son can mean like literally like a biologically related to. It can also be used to say belonging to the category of. Mm-hmm. In apocalyptic texts, there's often angels are being referred to as ones who are like human beings. Mm-hmm. And so it could be an angelic figure. That gets really complicated and hard to sort out. But I think the salient point here is that Jesus is associating himself as the Messiah with somehow or other this apocalyptic figure from the book of Daniel. And he's making a he's making a particular claim about messiahship, I think, which is that he is the sort of messiah who is going to establish God's reign over the kingdoms of the earth. It's an, it's an apocalyptic statement mm-hmm. about the, the shift of history that is about to happen cosmically. What do you think about that? I think that is, a, as you were saying, a really helpful thing to sort of just hold alongside the term messiah that sort of gives us a little more information about what he might mean by messiah. I also am finding it interesting now thinking about you know, the, the real scold, the harsh scolding that Peter gets at the end for setting his mind not on divine things, but on human things. And this text that starts out by calling him oh, yeah. by this term human, human one. one. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Which again, just sort of like highlights it's just not quite it, it sort of as you were saying before like you can go around till kingdom come saying he's the messiah and the people aren't gonna that was a funny phrase to use it was. But, <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe not the best one but you know even if they went around saying that jesus was the messiah no one's gonna know what you're talking about right and i feel like that's what is happening here in some way that that peter thinks he knows what they're yes. talking about and that that point is just sort of like the the knife is twisted even more for me when they start out the passage by calling Jesus human one, yes. and then Peter gets scolded yes. for thinking of human things. 
I really like that, Amy, you know, because what I j- had just did was took the term human one or son of man and I made it a cos- have cosmic significance, which I, which I which think it is does. Of, which it does. Yes. But the part in between the word human one and Peter getting scolded is Jesus talking about suffering and dying, which is a very yes. human thing to do. And so I like that way of thinking about the term son of man as sort of trying to embrace the humanness of Jesus and the cosmicness of his messiahship at, at the mm. same time, mm-hmm. which is exactly part of what Peter's it's having so trouble getting to, his head around. Yes, yeah, so hard to wrap his head around. And I love your pointing out that the suffering and dying is a really human thing. And Peter's response that's like, don't say that. Right. Like, don't say that is a very human way to respond when someone that you care about and in whom you are really investing your trust in their leadership, like, don't talk like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then Jesus has to say, no, this is it, it, this is precisely how we have to talk. So what Peter does there, so like the, the language of it, scolded him or rebuked him, mm-hmm. grabbed hold of him. Mm. Like it's, there's a passion there. That word rebuked that gets used is the same word when Jesus rebukes demons mm. and at, tells, like commands them to come out. Like that's the word Peter's using. And then Jesus uses it right back. Uh, yes. Corrected Peter in the CEB, rebuked him. They're, they're like, it's just like the the struggle that they're having back and forth is not just like a quarrel. It's like, you know, it is a rebuking at the level of like a spiritual conflict. And I think, you know, like, I love the way you're reading Peter there is saying like, I mean, I think what I hear you saying is Peter just, he loves Jesus and he doesn't mm-hmm. want to, he's saying, we'll never let that happen to you. Mm-hmm. And coming to Jesus's defense, not sort of like trying to correct Jesus's misunderstanding of things, but just right. saying this, this will never happen. Yeah. Why does Jesus bring Satan into it? <laughs> like what that, that's really strong. Yeah. <laughs> it's really strong. So the, first of all, the language of get behind me mm-hmm. can have two different sort of senses to it. One of them is like, get out of my sight, right? Like get out of here. Mm-hmm. The other is literally like, fall in behind me. Mm-hmm. And it's not exactly clear in which way Jesus is using that here. I like to read it as fall in line behind me, which by the way, also gets him out of his sight, <laughs> but like not in a, like, I don't want you to be around me anymore, but I want you to be in your proper place as my mm-hmm. follower, mm-hmm. not getting in front of me and, and tempting me with things. The other places that we've seen Satan in Mark, one of them is in the temptation in the wilderness, yeah. where exactly mm-hmm. Satan is trying to get Jesus to focus on human things rather mm-hmm. than being trusted than trusting mm-hmm. in God. Mm-hmm. And also in the parable of the sower, where the birds turn out to be Satan, like stealing, uh, stealing the seed. And so I think Jesus, by referring to Peter as Satan, is igno- like here Peter is playing that role trying to distract Jesus with things that are from a human perspective, really attractive. Like mm-hmm. we're not attractive, but we don't want to think yeah, about not suffering dying. And death. Not dying <laughs> yeah. is, is attractive. This is I what you say. want to hear as a human. Right. And so that's what Satan has kind of done in this text. And so it's distracting Jesus from his trust in God's purpose. Mm-hmm. And Jesus can't, it's so interesting because I feel like Jesus, there's a part of him that wants to 
listen to Peter. Yes. And so he has to say, get behind me because I can't, yes. can't handle yes. it. Yes. I, I, that is, oh, that's such a good way of putting that, Bobby, because I, I was thinking exactly of sort of the temptations in the wilderness and like, man, how tempting it would be to believe that this does not have to happen. Yes. That this can all go down a different yeah. way. Because Jesus is in a body and this is going to hurt. Like, (laughs) you know, and I just can't imagine how tempting it would be to start to fantasize and pursue a fantasy that there's another way that this can go down. Yeah. At the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus is on the night that he's arrested. He ends up in the garden of Gethsemane and he prays three times, Lord, take this cup from me or father, take this cup from me. So he... There's very much a part of him, at least in Mark's telling, that wants this not to be the way it has to go. But it ultimately is the way it has to go. Yeah. Okay, I have one more thing that I I, want to ask you about in this little section. And it's it's Jesus' description of the stuff that's going to (laughs) happen that we Mm -hmm. wish, you know, wasn't going to happen, but it is. I think— Okay. Well, I noticed two things about it, and then you can yeah. comment on either or both or yeah. or say something else. Spin the wheel. <laughs> One is that, you know, you were talking before about the complexity of the Jewish world at this time in history. And even before I had that thought sort of front of mind, it seemed important to me to note that, like, this is not—it's talking about the leaders of the religious establishment, you know, which is really something that you helped me to see in the gospel. Right. That it's not talking about the whole population of Jews. It's not talking about, you know, and now, now I'm like, maybe it's just the establishment of one part of the Jew. I mean, right. I don't know. So that's that's one thing that feels important to me. And the other thing that is always a little bit confusing to me, I think, is that this is reported as like, this is what must happen. It must be that mm. Jesus will be rejected by these different people and then be killed and then rise again. Mm-hmm. I feel like there I feel like the text should be saying should be coming out against those people or saying those horrible people are going to do this or what they're doing is wrong or this is an act of evil. And it doesn't say anything like that. It just says this is how it has to be. Like they're pawns in a bigger yeah. story. How do, how do those two things sit with you? How do they sit with you in terms of sort of the, the modern day relationship between the Jewish and Christian communities? That's like maybe too big of a question, but <laughs> I don't know. Say some things, Bobby. Lay yeah. some wisdom on us. Amy, the way that I read that is, I, first of all, what you were saying about the leaders of the people being the ones who are doing the rejecting, I think is right. And to me, it's not even important that they're the leaders of the Jewish people. It's mm-hmm. they're the leaders of the people who are in power in the region where Jesus is at this time. Mm-hmm. Elsewhere, it's going to be the Gentiles who reject Jesus, which, which means the Romans. And so I think it's getting at people in positions of power, including the religious establishment, which is important, not just in the ancient text, but also in our own time. The way that I read it is it is their nature. It is what they do to wield the power of death when faced with this possibility of the transformation of the world. And the only way in which the power of life overcomes the power of death, which in my mind 
is the story of the resurrection and the good news of the gospel is when the powers that be wield death, then God overcomes death with new life. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's necessary in that sense that the empire has to use its greatest weapon, which then God overcomes through the restoration of life, the resurrection of Jesus, which demonstrates to everyone who can see that in fact, death has no power. Mm-hmm. I still don't love that there's not another way. Like I, <laughs> I always want to second guess God here a little bit and be like, I totally went down that. I like went down that. I was like, what if Jesus lived a long life and died of natural causes and then he could be resurrected? Yeah. But like, that's not the story. And you could imagine a story in which Jesus is just such a powerful figure that everybody realizes that his way of life is the right one. <laughs> and everybody's like, I should love my neighbor. Yeah. And, and it's like a persuasive argument, right? But Mark, the, I mean, the Gospels, less so John, but the, the three synoptic Gospels in any case seem to think there's no, there's no way that would ever happen. And I, I mean, I think history kind of bears that out. Yeah. But so it is the overcoming of death that is the, is the only thing. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now, back to this week's podcast. But we could stop right there and call it good. <laughs> yeah, but but it's Transfiguration Sunday coming up, and we haven't been transfigured okay. yet. <laughs> okay, all right, and we're not even gonna. Okay, we still have a little bit. We have yeah, we're not <laughs> a even, little more we're to not talk about to before the yet. Transfiguration. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. So I'm gonna pick up then in verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, "If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me." For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? 
Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I am wondering first, Bobby, about, and your translation is often a little bit different, so I'll be curious to hear what, what it has. This phrase, let them deny themselves. Yeah. Can you, I don't know, pull that apart a little bit? I don't know if I'm asking you a vocabulary question or a philosophical question, but <laughs> yeah, what does he mean? The CEB, they must say no to themselves. Some people read that as like self-deprivation in some sense, like you shouldn't, yeah. you shouldn't take care of yourself. And I think that's uh, not only a misreading, but kind of a dangerous one Mm -hmm. because human beings need to be cared for, including we ourselves. But to me, the the denial is about who who is your ultimate allegiance to. It's related to this idea of Satan get behind me, right? Mm -hmm. Like, who are you putting in the front? And so when Jesus says you must deny yourself, it is ultimately saying this is not like your own self-interest is not the ultimate measure of things, but there's a bigger picture at play here. In the first instance, it's about loyalty to Jesus and Mm -hmm. loyalty to God. And then when you read that back through the Hebrew scriptures, it's that points in a whole other direction about like once you put God properly in place, it reorients your relationship to your neighbor. So there's a whole mm-hmm. thing there. If you put yourself in that place, then all of that other stuff goes away and you just end up in this sort of self-interested existence. And so I, I think that's what Jesus is after here is orient yourself properly to God, mm-hmm. which then will orient mm-hmm. you properly to both neighbor and self who all need care, mm-hmm. but th- their care is not the driving force. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, I think it does make sense. And I think the sort of uh, the, the best moments of I've that I've had of my understanding of my relationship to God has very much been a sort of orienting yourself such that like the real truest truth is God and you you are sort of an emanation of that. You are connected to it. You are not like a you are not a separate being that has its own Right, uh, you know, like goals and 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 whatever, whatever. Which I, which I, it is a denial in some way, but it's for me like a deeply comforting kind of thing yes. to sort of be able to stop with the you know ego shame motivations and try to orient yourself to a different kind of horizon. I agree with you that it could, it it would be easy to misread this in all kinds of ways at least in the English. I mean, when you orient yourself to God, the biblical God, the first thing that comes back is your worth as a right. creation of, right. of God. You are made in the image of God. Right. So it's not yes. about you are worthless and so you should not right. take care of yourself. It is yes. your worth comes from yes. your God-given worth. And so when you orient yourself yes. to God, you get that straight back. But yes. it's got to come that direction. Yes. Your worth makes sense in the context of the truth of God. That exactly. is that is where you make sense. Exactly. So 
I feel like maybe in some ways you've already gotten to part of this question, but, but I'll ask it anyway in case you want to add anything. When Jesus says, those who want to save their life will lose it, can you draw out what the it is? Like, I feel like this is a, Jesus is speaking kind of poetically here. Yes. Which is confusing if you read it fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So slow me down. I mean, as, as is often the case, I think that Jesus has two horizons in mind here, which can yeah. also be kind of confusing. The first one is definitely related to what we were talking about earlier, which is that true human life consists in this proper orientation toward God, self, and others. And if you try to protect your own life first, then you miss out on all of that richness that is possible if you live a life that is oriented correctly. Mm. If you set yourself aside in the first instance, committed to God, which points back to neighbor and self, then you can inhabit this other kind of world that is this rich tapestry of relationship. And so it's trying to get the thing you want by focusing on yourself exactly keeps you from getting the thing Mm -hmm. you want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The part at the end where Jesus is talking about the people who is, uh, a human one will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him, seems to be pointing to an eschatological future of when the kingdom of heaven arrives fully or when you go to heaven or however you want to think about the, Mm -hmm. the future world, that now there is this sort of, you know, what you, the way you orient to Jesus now is how Jesus is going to orient to you in the future. Like I struggle with that. Like gatekeeping of heaven always makes me a little uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. which is probably means I should pay more attention to it. (laughs) But it does seem to be like, here's the sort of like, you could have the richness of life now is sort of the carrot. And then the son of man is going to be ashamed of you if you don't, do this thing now is a little bit the stick. And so, you know, whichever way you get there, good for you. (laughs) Some people, some people need the carrot. Some people need the stick, but one way or the other, you want to be able to inhabit this future. I don't love that interpretation, but that's kind of where I land with it. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, that's where, that's where the text brought me Hmm. also. Have we used this terminology of being ashamed before that the people would be ashamed of him? I don't think, now that you say that, I don't think so. It just feels to me so like familial almost. Like you're only ashamed of someone if you think that they represent you in some way. Otherwise you just don't like them. Yeah. Oh, that's so like interesting. A, like you're embarrassed by them, kind of. You're embarrassed by them. Like you, mm-hmm. you recognize that they represent you, and I don't know if it's if it's because they're Jewish and he's Jewish, and so it's sort of as, you know, and he's going out there doing this stuff that maybe some people don't feel represents them. I don't know. That just has a different a different yeah. edge about it. It's not a rejection. It doesn't feel like a, far, a rejection of something that's far away. It feels like a yeah. really personal. That's such an insightful reading, Amy. And it, you know, for me, what when you were saying that, what it did was it said, what we're talking about here is insiders to the Jesus conversation. We're not thinking about like outsiders yeah. who might might not know about or might reject the gospel. We're thinking about insiders who do know and are embarrassed by it. And that's interesting because now it's about 
sort of the self-reflection and thinking about how my community is oriented, not worried about other people who might not follow Jesus, but about my own way of following. I always like things that make my community self-critical instead of critical of others. (laughs) I don't know what that says about me or my community. No, I think that is usually... I think I I think I learned from you that it is it is always better to put yourself in the the place of being critiqued and of strutting around. It is certainly true of someone like myself who sits in the world in the way that I do. I'm not sure that's true of of everybody. Yeah, I hear you. I hear but it's you. true of me for sure. I hear you. Is there anything else you want to raise up from this? There certainly is more we could talk about, but is there anything more that feels pressing to you before we get to the big, the the title of this reading. (laughs) The only other thing I want to just notice is that Jesus, their invitation is first to deny themselves and second is to take up their cross and follow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And taking up your cross, like especially we're, Mark's writing in 70 CE, right around the Jewish revolt against Rome and crosses were used as a means of execution. Like Jesus's execution is not unique in that, in that sense. His resurrection is unique, but people were being murdered, crucified, mm-hmm. executed by Romans with some frequency. And so people would have known about this. So take up your cross is like harsh. I've never like been able to find- dig your grave, you know? Yeah, it's like, like dig your own grave. Yeah. I used to say like strap on your electric chair <laughs> and <yeah>. let's go. <laughs> it's hard uh, to walk with an electric It is. <laughs> Crosses have become like, you know, people wear cute little gold crosses and whatever, which I mean, good for them. Like, I'm not, I'm not downplaying that, but the cross was not cute. The cross was scary. Mm -hmm. And so what this is saying is pick up your instrument of execution by the state and follow me, Mm. which implies that what you're doing is count, is encountering the powers that rule the world Mm -hmm. in ways that might result in your execution it's going yeah. to put you at odds with the powers that be. And that's what following means. And yet you're supposed to do it anyway, not, not taking yourself into account first, but taking into account this way of life that the empire is going to oppose. Like it's a hard command. And yes. sometimes I think we can lose the hardness of it. Right. You have to do things that you know will, are, will likely hasten your own death. Right. And humans don't generally like to do that. Right. Should we go up the mountain, Bobby? Let's go up the mountain, Amy. Okay. (laughs) I'm picking up chapter nine, verse one. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. 
I realized as I started that, that even though a new chapter started, really the first verse of chapter nine probably went better with the section we read before that. It did. It's such an unfortunate uh, chapter division. You know, of course, the chapter divisions were added much later, like in the Middle Ages. It's so so interesting that someone split it there, split it Mm -hmm. there, but but they did. But in any case, we're going up the mountain. Yes. So, Bobby, we have talked about this text a lot, or this story, Various versions of this one. Various versions of this story a lot over the years. And I both do and don't want to say what we've said in the past. (laughs) Yeah. I thought it might be interesting just to to talk through some of the stuff that comes up for us when we read this, because there are so many connections to other stories in the canon that seem like they're being pulled, like just put on the table here, explicitly or sometimes not explicitly. Yeah. And I will start by saying just the 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 combination for me of going up the mountain. Yes. Apart from the people, even though it's more than one person in this case, you're sort of separating yourself from the crowd. And then having some kind of experience where you become dazzling. There's some kind of like overwhelming yeah. light source. It makes me think of Moses going up yeah. Mount Sinai and leaving the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain. And and the story goes that that he came back and his face was so radiant that he had to wear a veil because the people couldn't look at him. He was blinding. Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly right. Bright. I think think that's exactly the right So that's one. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Elijah also goes up the same mountain, Horeb, Sinai, Mm. in 1 Kings 19. And so we've got two figures named here who had mountaintop experiences. In Elijah's case, you remember that story that we talked about at some point on the podcast of the still small voice of God speaks Mm -hmm. to Elijah and says, what are you doing here? And then sends him back down the mountain, which frames this kind of story in a a different way. So when you you think about Mm -hmm. the way Moses encountered God and became shiny, and then also the way Elijah encountered, encountered God and got sent back down the mountain... Mm-hmm. This text is playing with, with both of those. Can you talk a little bit, if you think about both Elijah and Moses, what holds those two figures together? Like, why those two? Well, hmm, that's a good question. It's not immediately obvious to me. I guess I, you know, because there is this tradition of Elijah heralding sort of a, a, the coming of the Messiah, I guess I imagine Moses and Elijah as sort of like the, the, the leaders of their time. They brought in something new, like they brought in a new yeah. chapter for their people. But I feel like that's not quite getting to it. So I wonder what you're thinking. So one thought is Moses represents Torah, Elijah, the prophets. And so here Jesus is seen sort of chatting amicably with the Mm -hmm. law and the prophets, which I think says something important about how Mark is thinking about Jesus' relationship to what has come before. He's not Mm -hmm. like trying to chuck them off the mountain or something, you know, Mm -hmm. he's not trying to displace them. He is uh, joining them in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. Why? Is now the moment for this to be happening? Like, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. Why Why is now the moment for this to be happening? The way that I've put it together for myself, and this is so, 
one of the things I like about this set of readings in the narrative lectionary, like holding all of this together, is I was commenting before that you can't really understand what Jesus means by yes. Messiah until you've seen the resurrection. But nobody can see the resurrection until after the gospel is over, right? Until yeah. Jesus has been crucified. So this transfiguration is sort of a foretaste of the heavenly mm-hmm. glory of Jesus. And so it's, I think, trying to reveal to Peter, James, and John the reality that is deeper than can be experienced in this moment narratively mm-hmm. that other people are going to be able to see later. It's trying to show it to them now. Bobby, I love that. And I love it in part because you started exactly where I would have started and then you ended somewhere really different. (laughs) (laughs) Say more about that. Well, yes, there. Okay. So yes, this is a moment where like the people that Jesus is speaking to on earth, there's no real way that they can understand what he's talking about. Like I, I have almost this image of like trying to explain something to a baby or trying to explain something yeah. to someone who just doesn't speak that language. They don't have any frame of reference. So you're just going to have to show them and eventually they will, uh, yeah, eventually they'll associate words with different things and whatever, but there's, there's no way to just get to it with words if they haven't had the experience of it. So then you saw this as an experience of that. And I think that's really valid. And I, in my maybe strange but deep empathy with with Jesus here, I just feel like he's he's in such a stressful position and nobody gets what's going on. Yeah. And I I see this in some ways as like like the first time you drop off your kid at daycare and the kid (laughs) just screams and screams and then you leave and you cry yourself and you're, you know, you cry in the car and then you call your friends who have had to do this. And- they just get it. You yeah. don't have to explain the whole <laughs> yeah. thing to them and why you're, you know, I just, I feel I like, like this is like a respite, just a short respite for Jesus to be on that other plane of existence where all of this makes sense. Like it doesn't really make yeah. sense in the world yet. I love that, Amy. I think it's a little break. Yeah. <laughs> and if you hold those two together, it's sort of simultaneously giving yes. a foreshadow to Peter, yeah. James, and John, and also giving Jesus a moment of re-entry into the place where he ultimately belongs. Right. Some, some friends who can be supportive. I like that. Yeah. Okay. We have to say something about Peter's desire to to build tents yeah. for them or Sukkot's little, some kind of hut, some kind of dwellings for them. And again, it's from a very sort of generous place. He doesn't say, let's make a, a dwelling for each of us. Like, he doesn't want to build himself a dwelling. Right. He just, you know, it's just for the guests. Like, he, thinking of this as like a, from a human perspective, that seems like a generous thing to want to do. Yeah. And I think it's so funny that Jesus doesn't even say no. Right. He just, <laughs> he just ignores it. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then the, then God's like, shoom, zooms in there from the cloud and like disrupts everything. Yeah. Like you just don't understand what's happening mm-hmm. here. Will you say just a word about, about what you think Peter might be trying to do and, and why the text just doesn't, doesn't really interact with that at all? I have, I have never come to, with a satisfactory answer for myself about what Peter's trying to do. I love what is said in verse six, like, he said this because he didn't know what else to say. And you know, like, I, I kind of think like, okay. It's like when somebody shows up at your door and they're like, hello. And you're like, would you like a 
glass of tea or whatever. I, you know, I, it's I like, think that one, one pod, podcast, I envisioned him like coming out with like a tray of like cheese yeah. and crackers. <laughs> like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's happening? <laughs> <That's it. laughs> so I, I like that that's sort of the base case is like he didn't know what else to do. So that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> but the interpretation that I have sort of gravitated to typically has been, you know, Peter has been trying to get Jesus in the previous story not to talk about having to undergo suffering and death. And so maybe if he could just like make a little hut for Jesus and like we can just stay up here and like everything will be fine. And we don't have to go through the stuff that we were trying to go through, sort of staying on the mountaintop kind of idea. Mm-hmm. That's I have I have found the most inter- interpretive energy in that mm-hmm. way of reading mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm I would not insist that it must be read that way, or necessarily even that that's the best reading of it. But that's the one that kind of catches me. Yeah, that catches you. How do you work with that? I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I actually think that if what we imagine that he's he's suggesting they build is something like a sukkah, like something like a little hut structure. Yeah. I have some thoughts that I'll probably share during the conclusion because they're a little bit far afield from the text about what it means to draw in the image of Sukkot here, the image of a sukkah. But uh, but I think you're right that he wants, again, in the way of humans, like he wants this to last longer than, than it really can. Yeah. I have one last question for you here, and it is about what, what God has to say. So the cloud yeah. comes down, again, sort of evoking this imagery of like the— the tabernacle or the temple that when when God is dwelling in that space, a cloud comes down and says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen mm, to him. Yeah. And, and that's at least part of what God said at the moment of Jesus's baptism, right? But it was private then. Right. It was, you are my son. Mm-hmm. It was spoken. Jesus heard a voice say, you are my son. Mm-hmm. Here it is. Peter, James, and John hear a voice an announcement, this is my son, whom I dearly love. And then the addition there of listen to him, like that's the thing, like that's the, the, here's the reason why. This is my son whom I dearly love. The instruction is listen. Yeah, all the things that he's saying that, that seem impossible and make no sense based on your experience in your body in the world and you don't know how to hold on to any of it. And... Listen, listen to it. Hold it the best you can. Don't mm-hmm. reject it because it doesn't fit with the other stuff. Mm-hmm. The thing that Jesus has most recently been saying, of course, is about having to undergo suffering and death at the hands of the political leaders and that followers are going to have to take up their cross and follow too. Yeah. Now, maybe the listen to him has a broader implication than that. I think it probably does. But you can't help in this moment. And Peter has been sort of rejecting that idea And so the voicing, listen to him, is sort of saying like, no, really, this is the way that it has to happen. So you've just got to get on board with it. Yeah. The other connection, when you were talking about how it's connected to the baptism, we were talking in that uh, episode about how it's, you're my son whom I love, and then bam, out you go Mm -hmm. into the wilderness where you're going to be tempted. Where you'll be tempted by Satan. Here it's, this is my son whom I dearly love, time to go down the hill where you're going to undergo suffering and death. Yeah. And so th- that sort of the belovedness yeah. and the suffering go together in both cases. 
in yeah. a way that seems important. I mean, it's troubling in some yeah. ways too, but it's important, I think, to Mark's telling of the story. And it really fits with what you were saying earlier about what it means to um, not be so worried about protecting your own life in order to save it. You know, right. that there is some way that we might associate belovedness with the power to protect one's body or protect someone from suffering or pain. And that is definitely not what this story is about. Right. Amy, the one other thing I just want to say about this text is mm. when we were talking in the Bible Worm Collaborative, somebody talked about the actual transformation itself, which is described as Jesus becoming transformed. His clothes were bright, brighter than the, if they had been bleached white. Mm-hmm. And the question was raised something about in our modern context, how do we talk about Jesus in his moment of glory being really, really white? Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. racial and cultural implications that could be carried along with that. Yeah. Do you have any wisdom about that? I mean, it's such a good question and it's such a it's such a pervasive sort of metaphor or image. Not, not just in the Jewish tradition or in the Christian tradition, but across so many religious traditions that somehow light comes to have this positive association and darkness comes to have a negative association, not in any, not in reference to someone's complexion. Right. They're, they're talking about the, the, like night and daytime, like that yes. kind of, that, that kind of darkness and light. The best I can think, honestly, is that is that we, yes, we have to work a little harder and encourage our our communities to work a little harder to think of it more like Jesus was like the sun, yes, with this incredibly radiant light coming off coming off of him, not light on the like Pantone, you know, <laughs> color right. meter, but light like let there be light, like the a source. Right. In some way, yeah. I think that's I think that's the best I got, Bobby. I don't know if I have a I don't know if I have more that I can offer on that. It's such an interesting dilemma because in Mark's time, it would have not had any of the these yes. issues. Right. And what he's trying to say is exactly that Jesus was bright in the way that Moses's face was bright, in the way that the sun is bright, and that's sort of the nature of the divine realm. And in our own time, it has such difficult implications, and we have to have such care in how we talk about it. The one other thing that I might add is it's Jesus's clothes that become white. Yeah, it's his clothing. It's not, nothing is said about his skin tone changing. And of course, Jesus was a dark-skinned Middle Eastern person, Mm -hmm. as was Moses. And so the brightness is not about the transformation of their physical Mm -hmm. bodies Mm -hmm. in that sense, like the coloration of their physical bodies, but about the luminescence. Yes. I do think we need to take care when we talk about this text in our communities Mm -hmm. that we don't give the wrong implications. Yes. All right, Bobby. Of the 8,000 things that a person could write a legitimately awesome (laughs) teaching (laughs) about to bring to a community, what's, what's pressing on you? My teacher, Walter Brueggemann, has this really delightful phrase. He says that the God of the Bible is a God in the fray, Mm -hmm. not a God who floats above the things, but a God who is down in the midst of the things. 
And to me, that expression is such a lovely sort of summation of what this text from beginning to end really has been about, which is that Jesus as Messiah is amongst the humans and dealing with all of the power struggles and all of the imperial dynamics and all of the sufferings and all of the uh, life leading toward death that humans do. And that it must be that way. And especially the piece that when you proclaim a gospel of love and a gospel of reconciliation and a gospel of neighborliness, that the empires of the world are not going to take kindly to that because it's not about preserving power structures and there's real danger. And here we have Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen to me. It has to be this way. Take up your cross and follow me because this is what might happen to you too. Here in the transfiguration story, when we're up on the mountain, we can't linger up there. We've got to go back down the hill where things are dangerous. And this text keeps keeps calling us back down. It keeps calling us back to be with people, calling us to recognize the suffering in the world and that only the power of life can overcome the suffering. And so I just think that's such a powerful summation in some ways of the whole Christian gospel, like being embodied Mm -hmm. in real places with real people, with all the trials and tribulations that involves, the degree to which that orientation toward God and neighbor and self and life in that true sense can rub the empire in the wrong way and the the call to do it anyway is is urgently important and right at the core of of everything. I mean, exactly what you do with that when you wake up on Tuesday, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But sometimes we just need to sit with that in the frayness, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Amy? What do you see there? I I love that. And I love that this text, I feel like it gives us in this brief moment up the mountain an acknowledgement that sort of as we live in the fray, we we will all need little breaks. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it it's funny to me. Okay, so so just to put a little background out there, so I mentioned before the word Sukkah or Sukkot. You might have heard of the holiday of Sukkot. It's in the fall. A Sukkah is like a temporary shelter. And when we build them in the fall for the holiday of Sukkot, we are remembering two different things. One is the time that the Israelites were traveling through the desert and dwelling in tents. And the other that I think is actually speaks to me more in this moment is agriculturally during a time that you're working incredibly hard in the field and your work is urgent. You can't just harvest for six months. Like (laughs) you have a limited window of time. Israelites would build a little temporary structure to be close to the field of work, but to be able to take a break from it and have some shelter when they needed to take a break from it. And as I mentioned before, that's sort of how I read the whole mountain scene in some way is that Jesus is in this field of incredibly intense and urgent work in the crowds of people. And he goes up the mountain and has this sort of temporary respite from it. 
there's a tradition during the holiday of Sukkot called Ushpizin, where we imagine that we invite our ancestors into the sukkah with us. And they can be traditional ancestors or personal ancestors, but as a way of sort of calling upon their merits and their strengths and like mm. empathic life force. I don't know. It's some way to sort of like be in the flow of tradition that is so much bigger than you for a little bit. And then you leave this. You can't stay in a sukkah. Like that's not the point. And so as I read this this year, that's really mm. sort of what I'm I'm yeah, I'm I picturing this as like Elijah and Moses are the ushpizin that yeah. that Jesus needs at this moment so that he can go back into the fray. I love that. Yeah. As you're saying, like a little a little shot in the arm because it's going to be hard. <laughs> I love that. So my question for people would be to think about like who are your people? maybe not people in your everyday life, but the people who really help you orient towards that truest truth or the long flow of eternity. Yeah. And for whom are you that person? I love that way of thinking about it. And especially if you hold our two interpretations together. Yeah. So who are the people that can energize and empower and inspire you to get back into the fray? To get back into the fray. And who is in the fray that might need you to be a respite and inspiration for them? I I love that. This was quite a text, Bobby. I'm not sure we can top. I'm not sure we can top this one. Um, (laughs) Not that it's a competition. But next time, we are reading Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, which is, oh, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Yeah, Yeah. it's another. Little messing with the meaning of the words there, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus likes to do that. Jesus yeah. likes to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Amy. Well, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Me too. And thank you for this one. This was a good yeah. one. Mm-hmm. See you next right. time. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Warm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Our next weekly episode explores Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. But between then and now, we'll have a special episode for Ash Wednesday, too. Until then, keep on digging.